About five years ago, I had a series of health scares that sent me into an anxiety meltdown. Though I'd always been prone to worry, this was different. This was something major. I struggled with agoraphobia, panic attacks, the whole nine. And the longer it went on, the more hopeless I felt. While suicide never crossed my mind, I do see how people can consider it when every day you wake up hoping you'll feel better, but every single day it's the same thing, and you wake up just wanting to go right back to bed. I'm Ashley Haugen, and this is the Southern Voices Podcast. On this episode, we're talking about anxiety and why it's on the rise. In fact, according to a new national poll released by the American Psychiatric Association, there's a five-point increase in anxiety among Americans, and the most dramatic increase is in the baby boomer population. With the recent suicides among the celebrity circuit, there's definitely a new urgency to understand mental illness and reframe it in a more approachable and accepting way. Today, we welcome three guests to the show. Our first guest is confronting anxiety head-on by making a bold lifestyle change. We're also speaking with two mental health experts about the causes of anxiety, the effects it has on our lives, and we're going to learn how to spot anxiety warning signs in both ourselves and our children and get some tools for how to deal with it. We hope you find it useful. We are here today talking with Annie Reeves. Annie is a, an employee of Style Blueprint, and she's actually the inspiration of this episode of our podcast. Um, Annie, tell us, tell us about the big life change you made last week. I was actually sitting with some friends at church, and I kept thinking about how desperately I wanted to check my phone, and I was completely like tuned into that, couldn't pay attention to anything else going around me, and I was like, that's it. This is like the final straw. I had this idea in the back of my head for a while. I was like, I'm getting my BlackBerry back. I was like, I'm tired of being constantly plugged into my iPhone, looking for emails, looking for Instagram. Did someone Snapchat me? Where are my friends right now? And I just felt like maybe I don't have enough self-control to just delete those apps. Or honestly, it just sounded really refreshing to be able to have a phone that I used purely for getting in contact with people that I need to be in contact with at that moment. So last Wednesday, I went to Verizon and I Ended up with a flip phone, not a BlackBerry, because they don't do Blackberries at Verizon anymore. And they were like, "Well, like yeah," they were like, "We don't know how to reset this up." So, right. um, so I have a flip phone now and have for for one week. And I love it. Life I don't know changing. if I'll ever go back. You know, it it is in a lot of ways. I think um, you don't know if you'll ever go back. I, wow. There's a few little things definitely that I can talk about that are a little frustrating and hard with going back to a flip phone and going all the way back. In fact, the guy at the um, at Verizon, I was like, okay, I want to do that silver flip phone. He was like, oh, are you like, you're disconnecting. And I was like, you know, I am. It's time. I've worked in social media and and been on my phone. I was actually like a blogger for five years and just totally obsessed with my phone and Instagram and everything that comes along with it. And he was funny. He was like, you know, we've actually seen this a little bit lately. We've had a few people come in and they want the flip phone. So anyways, I sat there and I like glanced at my phone thinking like, oh, this is the last time I'll ever be waiting on someone looking at my iPhone. And he comes back out and he had a different um, flip phone. And it was even just probably one or two steps down from the silver one that I had mentioned. And I was like, ooh, can I do the other one? Like, I think, he goes, ma'am, if you're going to disconnect, I think you should probably just go, go all, all the way. way. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I was like, whatever you say. And so 
Um, I've had it since then. You mentioned that it brought up anxiety in you. What? Yeah. How, in what ways? Background. Just started a lifestyle blog, and I did that for about five years until I moved to Nashville. So I did that when I lived. I lived in Charleston before, and I also worked for a big media company, and I was the social media manager. Um, we had millions of followers, and I was in charge of running all of our social: Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, every Facebook, all that's involved with that. So I remember I was thrilled to get this job at the time. I was like this dream come true. After a few months passed, I was like, wow, I am glued to my phone and feeling very, very anxious about making sure that every little thing I do on social media is so um, perfectly tagged and no mistakes and everything looks beautiful and it's getting engagement and all these different things that you consider. And I specifically remember it was actually the week I decided to move to Nashville. I, um, posted an Instagram for them and I think maybe tagged the wrong brand or just something that seemed at the time like this monumental issue. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, I don't even know that they noticed or that they cared, the people that I worked for, but I called my best friend and was like, I'm having a panic attack. Like I was laying on my bed and I was like, I feel like I can't get up. And I think it was not just from that one mistake, but from this ongoing, just constant, every little thing I was doing on my phone and on social media felt like it had these huge ramifications, Mm -hmm. which in reality is not the case. But when you're constantly in it and obsessed with getting the perfect shot and going to the perfect place to get the perfect shot and it it just turned into this like real like addiction I had known for a while like gosh I really what it would it be like to not worry about this or to not think about social media or not go to a restaurant just so I can get a good Instagram mm-hmm. and um, I thought it was something that was bringing me a lot of happiness but I think I've realized in the past few months and since moving to Nashville and kind of getting a step back from that world I'm like wow life there are people out there that that don't think about this on a daily basis and aren't mm-hmm. so wrapped up and worried about it. And um, I felt like the switch to a flip phone was the best way to like finally shut that door and see what it would be like. And what have you noticed in terms of your happiness level or your anxiety level? I mean, yeah. do you still check social like on your computer? Yeah, or? I do. I didn't, it's kind of like, like a diet. Like I didn't want to like cut myself off completely because you're still kind of obsessed with it. You right, just can't check right. it. And so I'll check it on my computer. I keep up. I, I love Instagram and I love pretty pictures. And um, I like knowing what my friends are up to. But I do feel like it's a lot easier to digest just like one or two times after work. And even things like last night I was sitting with my roommates downstairs cooking dinner. And my laptop was upstairs and then I just had my flip phone. So like I, I didn't have to make sure I was getting a work email or even a personal email or um, got a Snapchat from a friend. It was so nice to be able to just engage with them and be like, you know what? Like the world is not ending. If there is a huge emergency that someone needs to get in touch with me, they're going to pick up the phone and call me. And so I feel like I've been experiencing like brain fog almost where I was just having a really hard time concentrating Mm -hmm. at work and also importantly elsewhere in Mm -hmm. relationships with people Mm -hmm. and, in conversations and being at lunch with people and not fully focused. And so I feel like even just in the one week that I've swapped, I don't experience that as much because I'm not constantly, I don't know, it seems like there was always in the back of my mind like, oh, what if I just got a text message from so-and-so mm-hmm. or I, someone is trying to get in touch with me or like, I wonder about this email that I know is coming in later today. And knowing that I just don't even have access to that information on the phone, mm-hmm is such a relief. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were a 
eighth grade when Facebook came out? Yeah. And have you been on Facebook since then? I have. What were the parts of it that weren't positive? When we were in high school, you know, people would use Facebook to like upload photos from the weekend or things like that. And I like can think of honestly two specific instances in high school where Facebook caused like a big kind of uproar in a group of friends that I was a part of where, you know, there was this big party and you know me and my two closest friends weren't invited and then you might not know about it that weekend but come Monday when you're seeing all the pictures that's really hurtful and hard and um I think that raises a lot of like self-esteem issues you know why did they not want to invite me and so in talking about social media I feel like my friends and I are always like wow I just I cannot imagine what would it have been like if we had access to the social media that that teens have access to today right because they would have known about it while it was happening. Right. And um, so that's even a shift from where I was in high school now. So in terms of back to the the brain fog, I mean, I I can kind of attest to, yes, like it's almost like when you've got your phone and you've got your computer and you've got your iPad and you're just, and it's just like you're just, there's zero ability to hone in on one thing. Do you feel like that fog has sort of started to lift? I do. I think it's still a little bit of a, process. I read one article about how um, it takes about 20 minutes after you stop working to fully get back into work mode. Mm -hmm. And that really jarred me because I was like, wow, the number of times that I check Instagram and Facebook during the workday just in a lull. I mean, maybe I'm uploading pictures to a post and I'm waiting on them to upload and I just type in Facebook really Mm -hmm. fast to scroll through my feed and see what's going on. I was like, no wonder I feel like I'm not getting anything done or I'm always behind Mm -hmm. because that adds up and that's probably hours a day that I'm Mm -hmm. spent like trying to get back into the mode of working. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. And then the other main thing I've noticed is like at my desk, I would always just keep my iPhone on my desk. It would be on silent. I wouldn't necessarily be using it, but the number of notifications coming in, Mm -hmm. just my phone lighting up. And of course you glance over, you see what it is. Sometimes it's just a news notification or an email from a personal account or whatever. And you don't necessarily pick it up and read that Mm -hmm. but it's still very distracting you're never alone you're never never alone alone. there's always somebody going hey 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 oh my gosh and like when I see people's phones with like all the red circles with numbers like oh my god freaks me out I was actually at an appointment after work last week and I was like when was the last time that I came home from work and I actually like thought about something that happened that day I mean I know that sounds crazy but I was like I don't feel like I spend ever time just reflecting reflecting yeah which I'm like I feel you know I don't know I've, I've even felt like this regression in just intelligence and that sounds mm-hmm. kind of crazy but in high school I feel like that was a different person almost and you know I just was trying to think through like what is different now and social media and like the iPhone generation and I was driving down the street last week and I was on Friday morning past a restaurant that said they were opening I'm driving down Hillsboro and my instinct was to grab my phone and Google the menu of the restaurant. And I was like, why what? do I need to have yeah. that information right now? Right like, now. I couldn't, thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. But even that, I mean, safety-wise, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a, a, um, a benefit. But yeah. it does, we were like so used to being able to have the information now, 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 when mm-hmm. it's really like kind of not necessary. I yeah. can look at the menu when I go eat at the restaurant. Why yeah. do I need to have it right now? And right. Like, so you can take a picture and you can post it on social exactly. media. Yeah. It really is this, this cyclical this thing. Race, racing through life. Totally. Yeah. So, All right. Well, so I'm curious to, we'll have to check back in and see if you've 
stayed with the flip. Yeah, we'll yeah. see how yeah. it goes. But so far, so good. Kudos mm-hmm. to you. I think that's Plans a to change. bold move to take control Thanks. and get Thanks. yourself back. I highly so. recommend it. Bravo. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Annie. In chatting about all things flip phone, giving up the iPhone on the podcast this week, some fun conversation was sparked around the office at Style Blueprint. Namely, if you had to narrow it down to just one thing, what keeps you from ditching your smartphone? And is there anything that could change your mind? Are you holding on to your smartphone for life? First up, our fabulous business coordinator, Lauren Ubley, is going to share her answer. So I don't really feel like I'm that addicted to my phone, honestly. I'm pretty good about putting it away at dinner. My fiance, however, is not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if I, if there's one thing that's keeping me from getting rid of it, honestly, it's just like the fear of being out and not having connection to anyone probably. More so, I guess, like finding things without a phone, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Um, I think that would be the biggest fear, honestly. And it sounds Um, like you feel like you probably could do it if you had to. Yeah. I don't honestly feel like I look like at Instagram or Facebook or anything like that a whole lot on my phone. I obviously do it. Right. But. (laughs) It sounds like you're in a good place that you don't need to necessarily give it up then. I totally could. Yeah. But then I I might miss it. Yeah. (laughs) That is certainly true. But. There you have it, our first answer to our first on-the-fly question in the Style Blueprint office. All right, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nathaniel Clark with us today. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Vanderbilt Behavioral Health and Chief of Staff of Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Clark, for joining us today. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Um, well, we'll dive right in. Um, again, the topic today is anxiety. And I just, I'm wondering if you can kind of give us just an, a brief insight into what anxiety is. What are the symptoms as they manifest in adults? Is it different from how it manifests in children? Things like that. Anxiety is a, a disorder that's closely related with other mood disorders, including depression and bipolar disorder. And there are a number of different manifestations. Um, one of the most common is panic disorder. Um, And I think most people um, in the world actually have had at least one panic attack, if not more. Um, Some of the symptoms of panic include uh, being triggered by a certain event or stimulus um, in the world around you. Um, It can result in um, shortness of breath, um, a sense of doom, or a sense of um, the belief that you're dying, Um, sweating, nausea, numbness or tingling in the extremities, and just a general fearfulness about um, the fact that something really terrible might happen. And um, so what physiologically form- is happening in your body when that's happening? Is it, is it like adrenaline or what, what is taking place inside? That's exactly right. So um, you can think of anxiety as your body having a fight or flight reaction um, to something in the world around them that normally should not or does not provoke that reaction. Um, so in the development of um, man and other creatures, it's really useful and important to have a reaction when something stressful happens in the world around you. Um, And you can think that um, you would want your body to mobilize by taking in more oxygen um, so that you're able to um, to move better Um, and that the blood should start flowing through your body in a more effective way so your heart starts pounding. 
and your body might start sweating to cool you off. Um, your eyes might dilate to take in, uh, take in more light so that you can see the world better around you. Um, when all those physiological changes happen as a result of a immediate stressor, like someone threatening you, um, those symptoms all will make sense. And in fact, they're not even really symptoms, they're just uh, manifestations of your body mobilizing for action. Um, but when they're stimulated by um, a social situation or being up in a, on a height um, or being in the outdoors, um, it feels strange and inappropriate. And people will experience that fearfulness as anxiety. That's amazing because you don't really think about, you know, because as somebody who has experienced those panic attacks, you don't think about that is the, why your body is reacting in that way. And so that's really, that's very interesting. Um, uh, there was a new national poll in March of this year that the American Psychiatric Association recently released, and it was talking about the sharp increase in anxiety among Americans um, and cited a five-point increase over last year with baby boomers showing the most dramatic increase. I'm wondering if you can um, share some insight as to why you think that is. Yeah, that's a great question. And some of the research that's being done in this is really in very early stages. So some of the things that I'm about to say are informed by my psychiatric background, but are also um, some what speculative. I think what, what we've noticed um, here at our hospital is that um, there's been more of an acceptance um, and understanding that psychiatric illness is um, something that is in need of treatment and that better access to psychiatric treatment is really very important. So I, th I think some of the, the rise is individuals being more willing to come forward and say that they're in need of treatment. Um, so there's a, a much greater degree of education and understanding that Illnesses like depression, bipolar disorder, addictions, anxiety, trauma are all uh, things that are uh, really substantial. I think the other more speculative reason that I, 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 I'm going to opine about is that the world definitely is getting much more complicated. Yes. And it's a phenomenon that's happened every year. Um, you know, Every technology that um, comes along can introduce in increasing complexities. I think whether it's social media or um, the state of politics or gun violence or any number of different things, I, I think our exposure to these events, um, both on social media and in the news and in the people around us, are things that um, we've seen anecdotally have really driven a lot of people to experience a much more greater baseline of stress in their lives. And so you actually touched on something that I was going to ask about. So how much of a role do you think social media plays in a person's anxiety? I mean, we, we talk a lot about kids and teens and how, you know, the cyberbullying, things like that, but it's, it's, a, it's a factor for adults as well, is it not? I would say that's exactly uh, right. Um, again, in, in, in my opinion, um, social media um, can be an extremely anxiety-provoking experience for many people who, who engage in it on a daily basis. Um, so we've established that, you know, social media for, is definitely a, a factor of a source of anxiety in, in kids and teens. Um, in adults, is it the same thing? Is there a, a quick fix? Should people just get off social media altogether? Or is there a balance people can strike that you've noticed is, is effective in decreasing anxiety yet still allowing them to play in social media? The strategy for coping with issues with social media really relates back to a mindful self-appraisal of what the role of social media is in one's life, mm -hmm. what it's doing for, for you, and um, how much of an impact it's having. Is social media addiction a formal diagnosis in the psychiatric community at this point, or is it more of a self-diagnosis for adults? Yeah, as I mentioned a little earlier, um, it is not recognized currently as a formal diagnosis in our diagnostic and statistical manual, um, but research is being done on it. There's greater recognition of it being an issue in the community. Back to the topic of anxiety, what, how does anxiety manifest itself in different people? Does it look the same for everyone? Is it, um, is there a different way, like, 
can you look at somebody and tell that they're having a panic attack? What's the what's the sort of manifestation you see? It can really vary from person to person. Um, in um, younger individuals and in children and adolescents, um, there is a large nonverbal component um, where children can often find it difficult to put their feelings into words. So it's it's much more behaviorally based. Um, and th those behaviors can look really quite different, whether it looks like quote unquote acting out or anger episodes or um, more traditional anxiety. Um, in adults, it also can really vary quite a bit. For some individuals, symptoms of panic and anxiety can really be quite obvious. And other individuals are uh, much more uh, able to disguise their symptoms or to kind of get by with them. Sort of like a coping mechanism. I, th I think that's accurate to say. I, th I think um, one of the most difficult parts of anxiety is that there's this belief that um, people can see and judge you for your distress. And um, sometimes hiding your symptoms or um, trying to conceal them can be a really difficult experience. Um, one of the main things we encourage individuals to do is to lean into your anxiety. Um, uh, in conjunction with a therapist. Modifying your behavior and confronting yourself um, in a guided and safe way with things that make you anxious can often be a really effective treatment. Okay, so what does that look like? The basis for this idea is um, a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, okay. which needs to be done with a, a trained therapist. Cognitive behavioral therapy holds that there's a relationship between a person's thoughts, their feelings, and their behavior. In anxiety disorder, um, what happens is the person gets a thought that um, they're unable to function in social situations and that people are judging them. And that leads to the feeling of anxiety and to the symptoms that we described a little earlier. And oftentimes what will happen is that the person will start to avoid social situations because they both believe that they're not capable of coping with them, um, but also because the feelings are so terrible um, right. that they, they seek to avoid them. And when that happens, it becomes a, a vicious cycle. Um, where the more a person avoids an anxiety-provoking situation, the worse their anxiety actually gets. And this is similar to something that can happen with social media, is that there can be a retreat into um, the refuge of social media and to avoid um, things like face-to-face -face social interactions. And so under the care of a therapist, um, there's an ability to confront in either an immersive way or a more graduated way to start to move into social situations and start to understand that you, your anxiety will become very obvious to you over the course of minutes, whether it's 10 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, that physiological reaction will subside and your anxiety will get better. Dealing with that coping skill of um, avoidance, which is one of the maladaptive coping skills of anxiety, that, that will actually help with the, the treatment. Okay. That's interesting. Have you heard of a book called Peace from Nervous Suffering um, by Dr. Claire Weeks? She talks about how if you can rationalize with yourself that, and just bear in mind that there's a finite amount of adrenaline in your body and that the panic attack cannot keep going. That's exactly right. Um, that's the that's the essence of the fight or flight reaction is that it's only really your body's only really designed to sustain that level of um, you know the adrenaline surge for something like 20 minutes. For individuals suffering from anxiety, it can feel like a panic attack or anxiety goes on for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. um, but for a true full blown panic attack, um, what actually is happening is that um, in between panic attacks, that reaction sort of subsides and the body replenishes its store of adrenaline, and then a second panic attack can occur and subsequent panic attacks can occur. So it's almost like you've got to tell your, it's almost like you got to go out of body and just tell yourself, okay, this cannot last forever and just ride the wave. Is that right? I mean That's right. That's the education that we provide that a, a um, cognitive behavioral therapist would provide to a person suffering from panic disorder or other anxiety disorders. Just individually, it's actually very hard to force yourself to do something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so even if you know that that's the case, it can be really hard to you know change both your thoughts and um, emotions. Mm -hmm. um, but what a cognitive behavioral therapist does is to suggest that if you change your behavior that can actually drive a difference in your in your emotions and your thoughts. That's interesting. 
So is if somebody's struggling with anxiety, are there certain things that can um, create flare-ups? Is like you know, is lack of sleep, insufficient diet, things like that? There is a strong connection between the mind and the body, and I think we've understood that in a more holistic way in um, our health professions. And definitely um, things like lack of sleep, um, not eating well, um, not getting a good exercise, and what I would describe as an impaired ability to be reflective, mm-hmm. are all factors that can drive and exacerbate anxiety disorders along with other mental health illnesses. Okay. And so then back to what we were just referencing, what in terms of social media, what are some coping, coping mechanisms? One of the trends in well-being um, over the last 10 years has been a greater recognition of the importance of mindfulness. I think that the key to any change in um, your health decision-making has to do with sitting down and being reflective about what is the role of this uh, in my life. Um, for social media, I, I think it is possible to have a healthy relationship with social media and to live in that environment in a way that feels sustaining. But it really requires an honest appraisal of, you know, what, what is this doing for me and what is it taking away from me? Everything starts from that perspective. If you're in a position where social media is consuming your life and you're finding that you're extremely impaired, um, that you're unable to function at work or that your face-to-face social relationships are impaired, um, I think it would be important either to seek um, reflective help from an outside source like a therapist or, or a friend um, and really look at significantly reducing your your usage. Um, some individuals uh, really can't maintain a safe relationship with healthy social media um, and really have to think about um, cutting it out of their lives. For other individuals, it's really different where it may be possible to cut back or set healthy boundaries. Um, and there are a number of techniques around um, deciding on your, on your own um, how much is a healthy exposure to social media, and whether it's a few minutes or an hour or a few hours, and whether it's um, only focusing on social media during certain parts of the day and, and not getting intrusive reminders, um, not using it around bedtime or other times that there should be face-to-face encounters, th- those are all decisions that can be made individually. So setting uh, a timer, um, even a timer that's not on your phone, um, is a way of kind of saying that, um, you know, I'm going to have this experience outside of social media, making an agreement with a group of friends that, um, you know, we, we all have a, a shared issue with social media and we're going to collaborate around having some social media free time and holding each other accountable. Um, having other people kind of help you with that can be an extremely powerful way of changing behavior. All right. Well, is there anything else you would like to add that maybe we haven't touched on in terms of either anxiety or social media and how it plays a role in anxiety? I would just say that anxiety disorders are extremely pervasive. In my opinion, a, a real turning point in the history of our of our society where coming out and saying, um, I have a mental health illness is really at a point where it's becoming much more acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great change in our in our culture that we are more accepting. Um, I don't think we've I don't think we were, we're at a point where the stigma against mental health has been extinguished. You know, there are resources for people who are looking for help and treatment. The National Alliance for Mental Illness is one of the the great resources um, that can help guide people and help navigate the mental health system because it can be really confusing at first. And is there a phone number or a website that people can visit to contact that? The website is nami.org, N-A-M-I dot O-R-G. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your insight and the resources you've offered. And um, I thank you for taking part today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much. We are back in the Style Blueprint office, and now we're talking to Megan Casey, our Director of Marketing, and we're asking her the same question we asked Lauren. What is the number one thing about your iPhone you'd find hard to give up? And what, or is there anything that could change your mind? Well, 
I don't know if it's like one thing on my iPhone. My, my issue is that I look at my phone first thing when I wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will lay in bed for like 30 minutes. Totally. Reading articles, scrolling through email, looking at Instagram. And I hate it. Mm-hmm. The time passes so quickly and I think I could have been up meditating or spending extra time getting ready for the day or doing something actually productive or getting to work earlier. And it really bugs me that I do that and I cannot stop it. Break the habit. Yeah, I can't break the habit. That's a hard one. I feel like that's one actually, I know a lot of people who say that that's their same struggle. Mm -hmm. Like they have a hard time breaking that morning habit. And it almost then puts you on the schedule for the day of like being on it more. It does. And yeah, right? Because that's the way you wake up. So it's already in your hand. But I use it as my alarm clock, which I think is a lot of people's issue. So I went out and I bought an alarm clock and then put my phone in the other room at night. I put it, I plugged it into my kitchen and I, you know, shut the door in my bedroom and it was in another room. But the alarm clock gives off so much light that it drove me insane. I couldn't, I would wake up in the middle of the night and it was bright. And so I just haven't, I never went and got an alarm clock that didn't give off light, which exists. Part of it was the fear of giving up my iPhone. It was like, then I'll have a reason to to give up my iPhone, and I don't want to give it up. <laughs> I mean, I want to give it up, but I don't want to give well, it up. Well, there's your answer, yeah. maybe. Yeah. It's time for an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. There you go. We are here today with Dr. Kristen Rager, who is the owner of Rager Adolescent Health. She's an adolescent medicine specialist, board certified in pediatric and adolescent medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Thanks. Rager. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So today, our topic is anxiety. Um, There's a lot going on in the news, anxiety as it relates to suicide. We've got high-profile celebrities, um, you know, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain recently who've passed. Um, There's been recent studies that have come out that have shown an increased um, increase in anxiety in all age groups. Um, And so we really wanted to kind of dive into it in different ways today. And today we want to talk with you about um, anxiety and the impact it's having on youth and adolescents. Um, tell us a little bit about anxiety. What are the common symptoms? Um, how does it differ from worry? Is there a particular age at which you start seeing it? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me to talk about anxiety. I, I feel like in in uh, social media and just in our world today, it's escalating. And, and I see more and more children and adolescents every day who are coming to me both with concrete concerns about anxiety. So that is they come in and they say, I have anxiety or I'm worried that I have anxiety. Or they may come in presenting with physical symptoms uh, such as uh, stomach discomfort, headaches, pains, school avoidance, you know, difficulty participating in activities that they typically are part of. Uh, and, and once we start taking a really thorough history, then what comes out is that it's, it's excessive worry or anxiety. To your point of what's the difference between worry and anxiety, um, one way that I define that is anxiety is something that interferes with your job as a person. Mm-hmm. So, so as a young person, your job is to be a student, a participate, a participant in whatever activities you're involved in, a friend, a child. You know, those are your roles in life. Right. If your anxiety is interfering with any of those things then we really need to discuss it and decide what to do next. Okay. And are you seeing an increase in your practice in recent months, years? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I I will say um, anxiety, eating disorders, depression, 
are some of the primary topics people come to me for in the first place, mm -hmm. but I've had increasing numbers for sure over the past year and, and such an increase that I'm not even able to accommodate the number of people who are getting referred to me. Really? Mm -hmm. And so what, what happens with those people? Mm -hmm. Do you refer them to someone else or? That's a great question. I, um, I think that one topic that has come up a lot is the lack of resources or lack of access to resources countrywide. And, right. and so we do our best to refer people to someone else, but, but there's certainly, there's a finite amount of people, right. frankly. Right. And, and I would love to see improved access all around for sure. Do you feel like the, the people who you see, the, the young people you see, do they um, wind up in your office because their parents noticed it or because they've come to their parents and said, you know, I'm feeling anxiety or, you know, what's is, or maybe there's not a common thread. I don't know. There's a lot of different reasons why people come. Again, one reason is that the person him or herself has articulated to someone I'm, you know, I'm worrying too much. It's interfering with something like their grades, for mm -hmm. example. Um, sometimes it's because the parents just notice something is off or uh, some other caring adult notices that something is off. Mm -hmm. And and again, sometimes they come to me because they've, they've seen somebody for a physical symptom that's not easily explained. Um, for example, somebody presents to their pediatrician, like I said, for abdominal pain mm -hmm. or weight loss. Mm -hmm. and, and then again, once they start asking about it, it seems that there's probably not... For example, something wrong with their stomach, but that there's something else going on. And part of part of the importance of taking a really great history when interviewing a patient or their family mm -hmm. is because often things like anxiety are revealed. Okay, is anxiety does it run in families? Is it is it something that if a parent has it, the child is likely to have it as well, or is it mood disorders such as anxiety and depression absolutely run in families? Okay. And so it's actually a really helpful part of the history to say, you know, who else in your family may have anxiety or depression or an eating disorder, and 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 it's helpful for the for the young person who's pre presenting to care also to know that they're not alone right. and that there's other people in their family that may be affected and also to understand that that uh, mood disorders, anxiety, depression are medical problems. Right. If there's one thing that I would love for people to take home as a message from this is that that mental health is physical health. It is it is all part of the same puzzle and should be treated with equal respect and significance and lack of stigma. So in terms of it running in families, mm -hmm. is it a genetic thing or is it more of an environmental thing that they pick up? Definitely both. Okay. Definitely all right. both. Physiologically, what is happening inside of somebody with anxiety? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that because I love describing this to people. So, so anxiety is really a constant state of fight or flight. So your body perceives fear for whatever reason. And, and because of that, all of your fear hormones are ramped up. And so you're in a state of fight or flight. So you're thinking, I've got to get away from this danger. And so it's not any surprise that people therefore have an increased heart rate or feelings of sweating or um, feeling like they need to get out, feeling scared, um, even when there's not necessarily anything scary immediately going on. Right. And it's also why people can react very extremely to things. Um, it's because they're living in constant state of fear. Right. And again, a fear that may not be precipitated by any specific event yeah. or situation. And I think that's one thing that's really confusing sometimes for families is their um, anxiety can be completely 
organic. That is completely chemical where there's literally nothing that has happened to this person that should be making them live in this state of fear all the time. Right. And then in other people, there definitely is something that has happened that is caused, or, or things that have happened that can cause them to live in that state of fear. What do you think is the single largest contributor to increased anxiety in youth at this point? Uh, adolescents, young adults, children are scared. You see images on uh, social media of someone coming into a school and shooting students that look like you, that's gonna make you really scared. Yeah. If you see images on um, the TV of kids being taken away from their parents, then that is a very scary thing for kids to mm -hmm. see. So it's no surprise to me, based on what we are currently see, seeing going on in the world, it's scary to me as a parent mm -hmm. um, to send my child to school when I see images mm -hmm. on, on whenever I log on to my computer of kids who were shot at school. Mm -hmm or in Waffle House or wherever they happen to be. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a scary time to live in for a lot of different reasons. So it is no surprise to me at all that that has trickled down to adolescents and kids. What's, what's a parent to do? One thing that parents can do is to be aware of the social media intake or rather media intake of their kids. You know, like I'm saying, what's making me feel scared are these images that I'm seeing and the stories that I'm hearing. A, a social media media can be a blessing and a curse. It can be wonderfully positive and also wonderfully scary. Mm -hmm. And so for parents to monitor the use and to monitor what their kids are being exposed to and also to have really meaningful conversations about those things, um, for parents to be present and see what their kids are seeing and talk to them about it. Is this scary to you? What, what's going on in your school? How do, you, how do you feel about that? One of the most important things that I say to parents in general is anything your kid is consuming with regards to media, to, to know what it is and be prepared to talk about it. You know, if, if your kid is listening to a song that has cuss words in it, you know, that's not inherently bad, you know, if you know and you can communicate to them about it. Like, you know what, that word's not okay in our family. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but but I think that as far as the again the things that the broader are broader topic being yeah. to communicate and have these conversations absolutely, so and they're not in this silo by themselves trying to navigate. Of course, and and to and to be aware that as soon as somebody logs onto their computer or looks at their phone, they're going to see these images. They're going to see what's going on, and to just be aware of it and have open lines of communication about it, and also to really make it clear to your child that they can come to you with anything and ask you about it. What's the difference between anxiety and worry? How, how does a parent differentiate? I, I think one important distinction, again, is, is it interfering with what your kid's doing. Okay. So, so worry is not necessarily negative, right? It can be uh, motivating. You know, if I'm worried about how I'm gonna do on my SAT, I might be motivated to study more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so, so I don't think it's, a, I would certainly not wanna create a situation where somebody didn't worry about anything. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's what keeps us safe. But, but there's that line which is crossed where it becomes worrying about, so, so the definition of, of anxiety um, is worry about multiple things, um, excessive, difficult to control, uh, things that are interfering with sleep, eating, studying, friends, hanging out, doing stuff. Okay, so just being in tune with, with that in your child. Absolutely, and, and I think that, especially with teenagers, Parents often wonder, appropriately, you know, what is, what is part of being a normal teenager? Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain developmental tasks and, and psychological process that, that teenagers go through that is, that is different. Right. <laughs> but but um, 
how to decide what is normal adolescent development versus what is actually something that's excessive. And, and what I would say is, again, interfering with something that person used to do and love or excel at or, or participate in fully is, is a big red flag. Is, what's, is there a general age at which you see anxiety coming out in kids? Well, it's, it's younger and younger. Is it? Mm-hmm. As young as what? Well, I only see people in my practice down to about 10, okay. but I will tell you, we get calls from, uh, from people who have children younger than that who need to be seen. And, and so it, it can be present in a kid of any age. And again, that goes back to that, what have their life experiences been? Have they been witness or party to any trauma directly or indirectly? Or, or is it simply biochemical and, and related just to the genes and the, and the chem, brain chemistry that they were? And based upon the difference, um, whether it's chemical or um, what they're watching and consuming, Mm -hmm. is that that must dictate the treatment paths. Treatment for anxiety is really best uh, when it is a two-pronged approach. And this has been well demonstrated and studied in adolescents for sure. And that is a combination of medication and therapy as well. And um, this is certainly not me saying that all kids need to be on medication. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But if, if their lives are being interfered with in a significant fashion is something that definitely should be considered. Okay. And, and again, meeting with a therapist one-on-one uh, to, to go through what's happening. You know, what, what is the source of the worry? Is there something? Did something happen? By def- it's not by definition that something did, mm-hmm. but it's possible. And you sure wouldn't want to miss that. Uh, so, so I recommend to patients who come to me, who we do feel that they have problematic anxiety, again, or depression, that they, that they hit it hard. And, and the way to hit it hard is to use that two-pronged approach, again, of, of therapy and medication as well, very closely monitored. Is there anything parents can do early on um, before these kind of peer pressure years or the anxiety years to mitigate any potential anxiety issues later on? Sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I, I think it's important to to acknowledge that sometimes when we do everything right as parents, uh, kids can still be affected and uh, and can can have scary outcomes for sure. And and so I certainly don't want anybody to to hear this conversation that I, and think that I'm placing any sort of blame on parents because as you know, sometimes things happen that are completely out of our control. As far as what we can do best. I really love to emphasize uh, to any caring adults, whether they're a parent or not, anybody who interacts with children and adolescents, to just make sure, again, keep those communication lines open always. I'm here for you. I'm going to love you no matter what. Please come to me with anything that you're concerned about, good things, bad things. I'm here for you regardless. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's, that is the most important thing. And, and it's been well studied that having one caring adult in a person's life can make a huge difference as far as risk reduction. So, and it doesn't have to be a parent, any caring adult. And obviously there's a connection between anxiety and suicide. Um, sure. And as we're seeing both of those increase in numbers, mm-hmm. how can a parent differentiate you? And you often hear once, you know, when somebody has taken their life, you know, people, I never would have guessed he would have ever done that, or he did, I never saw any signs or so is there a way to spot that before it happens? Um, how does a parent navigate between, you know, normal teen struggles and potential for suicide? I think I would love to say the following, that talking about suicide has never been shown to encourage someone to do it. Okay. And, and so I don't want parents or people who interact with young people to be afraid to bring that up. 
uh, for fear that it might encourage them. That's not been shown to be the case. And, and so if any parent, I mean, I, to go back to what we were saying before about using media as an opportunity for conversation, I think that the recent cases of famous people, you know, who, quote, had everything um, yet still died by suicide. I think it's an important thing for parents to bring up to their kids. You know, did you see this? What are your thoughts about it? Have you ever thought about it? Have any of your friends ever thought about it? Because data would show us that most adolescents have thought about it and a significant percentage have actually tried before and their parents may or may not know. Um, I, I think that your point is excellent that often people have no clue absolutely no clue and are blindsided by it and are forever haunted by the question why, for which they may never have an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say to that is, is uh, depression in particular is, is a horrific medical problem that can, can convince people that, that everything is awful even when it's not. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and if parents are concerned for their kid, please reach out for help. Do not hesitate to reach out for help. And I know we're talking about difficult difficulty accessing care, but um, don't don't hesitate to reach out just because it may be difficult. And, and I would encourage parents, you know, if, if you're hitting roadblocks and trying to find someone to see your child, if you're worried, please press on. Please, please be aggressive in trying to find someone to help. Reach out to your pediatrician, your family medicine doc um, to get help because if you're worried, there's something that's causing you to feel that and right. you should listen to it for sure. When a child has threatened suicide or shown suicidal tendencies, um, as a parent, I can imagine that that would kind of almost hold you hostage, that fear of my child, I can't leave them alone, or what am I going to find when I come home? What what advice do you give to parents who might be experiencing that? I think that, again, you have to listen to your gut. If If you're afraid for your child, there's a reason why you're afraid, and please reach out for help. Please reach out for help. I I think it is such a hard thing for parents to try to assist their their child with alone. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that for any parent. I, I would hope for them that they have the the ability to get help from someone. And, and again, the the front line are are, are pediatricians for sure. Okay. And, and so to, you know, if you don't know what else to do, go to them and say, I'm really worried about my kid. Can you please help me? I um I have never had a parent who regretted reaching out for help. Perhaps unnecessarily, you know. Right. I would I would much rather have somebody come to me with worries that turned out to be unfounded than the converse. Right. Uh, so so again, I encourage parents to listen to their gut and, and to communicate with their kids if they're worried. Um, and and if your child won't, is not willing to communicate with you, don't let it stop there. You know, right. please seek out someone uh, else who can help. Last question. If you had a microphone and an audience filled with parents worried about anxiety in their kids, what would you tell them? I would say, first and foremost, this is a medical condition and treat it like any other. If your child had cancer, you would run to get help as quickly as possible. And you would want to be as aggressive about that as possible because you would want your child to live and have a happy, wonderful life as we all do. Consider mental health issues in the exact same way. Uh, don't buy into the stigma. Um, many, many people are affected with mental health concerns. Most people, frankly, but not everybody uh, reaches out for help. So I would, occur- I would encourage parents to reach out for help for their kids for mental health concerns with the, the mom, dad, 
parent fierceness that they would for anything else. One thing that I think is especially important to note um, in context of this being Pride Month, uh, June, is that LGBT kids are at exponentially higher rate of being affected by anxiety and depression and suicidality, as we were talking about before. And so so to really call attention to, to loving on those kids and giving them support as well, especially during Pride. Great advice. Dr. Kristen Rager, thank you for being here today. It was wonderful to discuss this with you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you or someone you know is struggling with anxiety or thoughts of suicide, the National Alliance on Mental Illness offers a wealth of resources. Visit NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org. Or you can text NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741-741 on your mobile device. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Just as Dr. Rager said, seek help and do not stop until you get it. Special thank you to Annie Reeves, Dr. Kristen Rager, and Dr. Nathaniel Clark for being our guests today. Southern Voices is produced by Style Blueprint. Music provided by Aaron Walters. Engineering by Jesse Gillen-Walters. Editing by Jesse Gillen-Walters and Annie Reeves. Get to know more Southern Voices on our website, styleblueprint.com forward slash southern voices. I'm Ashley Halgan. Till next time.